0: chapter 6 verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples there. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Interesting. Amazing. Stunning back-to-back miracles of Jesus. But why here? And I pray that you'll give us ears to hear. I pray, Father, that our hearts will be willing to receive you and to understand not just by comprehension, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and listen, fulfill your ministry. Do you remember when you started into full-time ministry? You see, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you may or may not have recognized it, but that was day one of your full-time ministry. And it's not the paid people. It's not the part-timers. It's not the volunteers who have a title attached to their name. It is every single person who has ever given their life to Jesus to follow after him, to take up their cross and follow him. You have entered a life of ministry. We are in the ministry. Think about a life of ministry, which again, to which every follower of Jesus is called. A life of ministry isn't always what we think it's going to be. We can romanticize it, we can glamorize it, especially early on. But if we're following after Jesus, we need to remember a couple of things. We need to remember, first of all, Isaiah 53 verse three, that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like. And Jesus himself said in John 15 verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I say that with a smile because, not because I'm, you know, sadistic or masochistic in this whole idea of following after Jesus. Hey, hey, persecution's coming. Yeah, it's gotta be a total train wreck, can't wait. That hunger is imminent. Challenges and, and difficulties and hardships, they are part of the following after, especially because we follow after the one who was himself despised and forsaken. You see, everybody wanted something from Jesus. Everyone wanted something, whether it was the crowds who wanted to see more miracles or or the, uh, the politically upset who wanted to make him king or the leaders who were just out for murder. Everybody wanted something from Jesus. What's interesting to me is as we open up John chapter 6, the ministry just goes on. That for all these things, Jesus is undaunted. And it wasn't easy to be undaunted being Jesus. He continued on. As we begin this chapter, John shares two, as we read, two astounding back-to-back signs. Remember, John only gives seven In his gospel, seven signs he calls them, and these in chapter six are the fourth and the fifth. There's only two more after this. John shares these signs, and beginning the chapter, he starts by saying, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So Jesus Went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's understand something, first of all. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. It is not huge. I'll never forget the first time I saw it, coming over a bluff in a tour bus above the Sea of Galilee. We could look out and see the whole thing. And I went, Lake Tahoe's bigger than that. That's the Sea of Galilee? One of the great surprises of traveling in Israel is things are sometimes much smaller than you expect and sometimes much bigger. The Sea of Galilee, again, 13 by eight. It's Israel's only natural freshwater lake. Now they have some other uh, basins that they have developed, but this is the freshwater lake, and they rely on the water from the Sea of Galilee. If you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, and I'll try and do this from your perspective, so the north to northwest shore, you have, is that right? Would that be west for you, other way? That's your west, okay. Okay, so from the north to northwest shore, you have like Bethsaida all the way around to Magdala. And that's primarily Jewish area, or, or what? All the way around to the eastern shore, you've got on the southwest Tiberius running around to Gadara, and that was prominent, prominently Gentile. So to go across the sea would be going from the Jewish region to the Gentile region. Liar lake not like deception pass Liar lake because it looks like a lyre like a harp so you could call it harp lake now john mentions in first one and i'm just giving you a little background here john mentions that it's also called the sea of tiberias because around 20 a.d a man by the name of herod antipas founded the city of tiberias on that southwest shore and that was a a place for his government, and it was very, very Gentile, and Jews did not like to go to Tiberias. In fact, Herod Antipas built that there as a kind of a toady's nod to Tiberius Caesar. Well, John now starts off the gospel, and we're at the Sea of Galilee. So remember, the last place we were was in Jerusalem. Suddenly, here we are at the Galilee. Some time has already passed. John begins with his phrase, one of his favorite phrases, you've heard it many times here, after these things. Metatauta in the Greek, after these things. John likes that phrase because what it does, and he uses it this way, is it establishes sequence in his writings, whether it's in the gospel or in the book of Revelation, it gives us a sequence, a a timeline, if you will. But it's not necessarily a tight timeline, a super tight chronology, as so much as a sequence that something happened here, and we realize it's been about six months since Jesus was down in Jerusalem, six months since the last sign that we saw Jesus healing the poolside paralytic at Bethesda in Jerusalem. So some significant things have happened, and I think it's helpful to know as you enter into John chapter 6, What's gone on for Jesus in the last six months? For one thing, and John leaves this to the other gospel writers because they've already shared these things, Matthew 10 through 14 and Mark chapter six tells us that Jesus sends out his apostles, his disciples in the Galilee, sends them out on a successful, highly successful mission. They're combing the Galilee, preaching repentance, healing people, casting out demons. It's an amazing time. The ministry has exploded around the Galilee in this six-month period of time. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also something else highly significant in the life of Jesus has happened. Herod Antipas has beheaded John the Baptist. That's the background as we open up Verse 1 of chapter 6. In fact, Matthew 14, 13 says, Now when Jesus heard about John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And we believe that is the parallel to after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea. Need to understand going into this that, that Jesus went away. He retreated. The apostles, the disciples are spent and weary. Jesus himself is sorrowful and weary. And so he departs probably the Jewish side because when John talks about the other side of the Galilee, he's talking about the Gentile side. So he's probably departed the Jewish side and he sailed across to the region of Gadara on the other side, Gentile territory, a place where he would be less known, where he would be more anonymous. You ever do that? You ever seek a little anonymity when your life is getting nutty? See, that's what we like about vacation. We can go somewhere where no one knows who we are. That's a marvelous thing. The needs don't stop, however. See, this is ministry in real life. Ministry in real life is you're serving Jesus, you're following the Lord, and you think, I'm just going to take a little break for a short amount of time, and ministry does not stop. It just keeps going. I think about, and I've shared with you before, D.L. Moody sitting at the dinner table with his family. He's just come in the door. He is exhausted. He is pale. He's having his dinner. He's just finished one ministry outreach, and he's on his way back out after dinner to the next ministry outreach of the day, and his family asks him, aren't you tired? Don't go. You look so weary. And he now famously replied, I grow weary in the work but never of the work. I have remembered that over the years. I grow weary in the work Christ. So though you may grow weary in the work, you never grow weary of the work because this is an eternal thing. But you still have to ask the question, how do you keep going? When you're weary like that, how does a D.L. Moody get up from the dinner table and head right back out to another outreach program? How does Jesus Christ, how does he show up there in the Galilee, see all the things going on, hear about the beheading of his beloved cousin, and then get in a boat and head across to the other side. How does he head across to the other side and then face what he has to face there? Which, by the way, is not the retreat that he might have wanted. Not the retreat that you might have expected because Jesus sails away and there they are, the paparazzi. The paparazzi along with the Mama Razzi and all the little Rozzis, They're all there <laughs> waiting for Jesus. Matthew 14, verse 14, parallel verse says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. See, if it was when he went ashore, Rick saw a large crowd, I'm not sure that felt compassion would be the first thing to rise up in me. <laughs> felt a little sick to his stomach, felt a little woozy. Mark chapter six verse 34 says he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I love that. The, the contrast there. Mark or Matthew says he saw the crowds, felt compassion, and he healed them. Mark says he saw the crowds, felt compassion, and he's the crowd, and we know his motivation. he feels compassion, but the crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Verse three, then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Why does he say that to Philip? Well, some think because Philip was from around there. Which is a little weird because Philip was actually from Bethsaida. And if Jesus sailed across, he'd be in Gadara. So Philip wouldn't know where there was a McDonald's in Gadara, you know. But Jesus says, where do we do that? Where do we buy bread so that these may eat? Listen, when you're weary of the work, number one, the compassion of Christ is comfort food. The compassion of Christ is comfort food. The apostles are worn out. They've had quite a ministry tour. Jesus himself, sorrowful, but there is a compassion that rises up in him. And my friends, it is a godly compassion. This is not something we stir up in ourselves. I can tell you from experience, it is not something that you stir up from yourself. It is something that is divinely given. It is something that comes from God himself. And Paul describes it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be a spiritual woman says, how can I turn this to serve The spiritual man, the spiritual woman says, God, I need your comfort. Why? Because I am still needed by others to bring your divine comfort. It's compassion to comfort other people that comes from the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's where it comes from. He has comforted me, and I turn around and share that same comfort. The compassion of Christ for me builds compassion in me so that as Jesus healed and taught the people and knew the comforts of the Father, so I can turn around in like motivation by the comfort of God, which has been given to me. Jesus knew the comforts of the Father. Remember, this is is Jesus in the flesh as well as in the Spirit. Yes, God, but absolutely man, he knew the comforts of God. And so he ministered, he healed, and he fed people, as we will see, out of that divine comfort. And so he says, where can we get food for these people? Verse 6, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. I love these little insights that John gives us. Jesus knew what he was going to do. The moment he saw the people and started healing and teaching, he already had in mind it's lunchtime we got to cater this thing. But he hasn't said anything to the apostles yet. He just knows himself worth eight months' wages to feed 5,000. Remember, this is 5,000 men. And so it's been estimated ten to 15,000 people if you add in women and children. This is a massive crowd who shows up on the other side, who tracks Jesus and his disciples down to meet him on the other side, running around that little harp-shaped lake. Denari, we don't have it. But again, Jesus already knew what he was intending to do. Question, do you know he knows? Do you know that he knows? When we don't know, he knows. When we have no idea, he's got every idea. When we're not sure, he's absolute. Do you know he knows? Second thing to note here, not only does the compassion of Christ serve as comfort food, but the foreknowledge of Christ feeds our faith. The foreknowledge of Christ feeds our faith. That is, very simply put, faith is knowing he knows when I don't know. What are you gonna do in this situation? I don't know, how are we gonna get through this? I don't know, but he knows. Do you know that he knows? Deuteronomy eight sixteen tells us in the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know. Now part of that is they had never seen manna before, they didn't understand manna, it was a surprise to them, but part of that also was they did not know how they were gonna eat as they headed out into the wilderness, they had no idea. They're just being led by plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And I always like to point out that God said that in letter form, written by Jeremiah, sent off to the exiles in Babylon. I know the plans I have for you. As they're looking around in this foreign city of complete babbling language they didn't understand. What are we doing here? It's over for us. Judea is over. The kingdom is over. Hey, hey, guess what? I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a future. Do you know that he knows? So he knows what he's going to do. And so he now draws his disciples in to draw out their faith. Pulling them in. He's getting them involved in the problem to go through the process with him. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Now, listen, this is the only miracle that is listed in all four Gospels, so that's a big deal. All four repeat this one, different aspects of the same exact miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. That's a big deal, but here's a minor point for you. John's is the only one who mentions the lad. See, that's why it's a minor point. <laughs> he's the only one <laughs> who mentions a piderion in the Greek, a lad, a, a boy, a, a young boy. So we're talking about a kid, eight, nine, 10 years old. Oh, miracle is based on what this kid brought to the table. He just got his little sack lunch that he's hauling along. He's carried with him. And what's interesting is not only is he only mentioned in John, but he is left unnamed, he is unknown, again, unmentioned in the other Gospels, but he's not unimportant. Oh, no, he's not insignificant, and neither are you. And you don't even have to know why. So that's the beautiful thing about following Jesus. Your significance is not based on what you think you know or how ready you are for what's coming. Your significance is based on the fact that he's going to use you. And that makes me significant. That gives worth and value to my life. He's going to use me, by the way, he's going to use me in ways I don't even know. Not only ways that I'm not prepared for, but he's going to use me in ways that I didn't even know he was using me when he was using me. You know in Matthew 25, when he talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats, one of the things that fascinates me in that parable is the people that Jesus says, oh, you visited me and you fed me and you came to me you know, enter my kingdom, and, and, and their answer to him? When did we do that? When did we see you sick and visit you? When, when did we know you were hungry and feed you? When you're when we in prison and we visited you, when, when did we do? See, the servants of God don't know oftentimes when we're serving. Like the kid with the lunch, we just show up with our lunch and Jesus starts to use us. Seemingly insignificant and yet very significant kid, because again, without the kid, there's no basis for the miracle. Well, Rick, there is a basis for the miracle. It's Jesus. Okay, Mr. Spiritual, but you know what I'm saying. Now, Andrew says, but what are these for so many people? He brings the lad, and I I have heard entire sermons based on Andrew bringing the lad. You know, good for Andrew, a shining moment of faith. Read what he says. The only reason he mentions the lad is to point out how absolutely absurd the situation is. This is not a moment of bright shining faith. He's saying 5,000 men and a couple of McDonald's filet of fish sandwiches is all we got. This This is not gonna work. By the way, understand what this is in this kid's sack lunch. Five barley loaves, barley was the cheapest of the cheap bread. Five barley loaves and these were probably tiny little flatbread crackers, okay? Not much to them. So if you break it down, that would be one cracker per every thousand men. And these, think about the, the, uh, the cheese and crackers or the peanut butter and cracker packs that you can buy at the store. That's probably more than what this boy had. Five little barley flatbread crackers and two fish, but it's not like he had a couple of trout, you know? Or, or, or you know, some tilapia, which there's a lot of that in the Sea of Galilee. They call it St. Peter's fish. I'm like, yeah, I can get that at Costco. Anyway, where cracker spread. They would smash them up on top of the crackers as kind of a, a relish. Five barley, cra- that's barley enough for the kid. <laughs> Five barley crackers with this fish spread on top of it, and that's what we're talking about. And Andrew says, this is ridiculous. But again, whether he meant to or not, Andrew did the right thing. He brought the kid to Jesus. Now he brought the kid with a lack of faith, I believe, and yet Jesus uses whatever we bring. Number three, if you're noting these things, my ingredients increase in his hands. My ingredients, however trivial, crackers and fish spread, my ingredients, I don't have much to give. I have heard that before. Have you ever said it? Have you ever heard it? I, I just I don't even know what I would do. Well, how about you just show up and let's see? Well, I don't know what I have to give. What do you have? Well, not much. Okay, that's perfect. My ingredients, even trivial, increase in his hands. Let me explain how that works. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being. All things came into being, even the pittance in your hands. Those two little fish existed because Jesus created them. The barley of those crackers existed because Jesus caused them to grow. All things came into existence through him. Revelation 4.11 says, worthy are you to deal, are we willing to come to Jesus for a creative solution? A creative solution, a supernatural one in the natural woman. But supernaturally my ingredients increase in his hands. And Jesus would say, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul later wrote, Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. Well, I just don't have that much to bring. Perfect, perfect, just bring it. Jesus doesn't just Feed the flesh. See, he feeds the spirit. We're involved in a supernatural work here. We've got to remember that. Verse 11. So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. I, I skipped verse 10. Go back to that. He said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in that place. So the men sat down and number about 5,000. And I'll just point this out to you. They're sitting in the grass. So if they're sitting in the grass, it has to be springtime. It's not quite time for the hot summer sun to burn the, the hillsides brown. So it's a grassy time. So it is pre-Passover. So it, the whole thing fits very well together, as John is recalled. So they're not just getting, you know, a handful each. They're stuffed. They're eaten till they're done. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, took them out, had them bronzed and put them in a museum. No, they gathered them up (laughs) with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet, you recall Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. God said, I will raise up a prophet from among you, from among their countrymen like you, Moses. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and that is Jesus Christ. And it shall come out that will not, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That is, we'll require it of the listener. You hear his words and you don't listen, I'm going to require it of you ultimately. The prophet, is this the prophet? Listen, while the people were chewing on the miracle and they're thinking it through and they're processing what they're seeing, what was Jesus doing? He's gathering up the leftovers. I, I joked about having him, you know, putting him, that's what we would do. We'd gather the leftovers, put them in nice little vials, and we'd put them in a church somewhere, and, you know, we'd go, people would show up and worship them. Oh, these are the fragments that he gathered up. Probably, and it's just a guess here, probably they gathered all those up to tell us, except for the fact that he gathered them up, these fragments, listen, fragments, the Greek word is klasma, and it literally translates broken pieces. Gather up the broken pieces. Useless cracker crumbs, discarded loaves, untended fish. Number four in your notes, Jesus cares about the broken pieces. He always cares about the broken pieces. Okay, Rick, that's emotional. You're just making something out of nothing. No, I'm not. Because the fragments indicated something to Jesus. The fragments were a parabolic picture for Jesus, if you will. By the way, something else in the Gospel of John, you know what he never does? He never shares a parable. In John's Gospel, no parables. In the previous three, tons, you know, there's lots of teaching. John doesn't share the parables of Jesus so much. He does share the applications, but there are living parables, and this is one of them. The feeding of the 5,000 is a life parable, what's taking place, the gathering up of the broken pieces. We know what this meant to Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 19, he says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? performed a parable before them. In fact, Jesus performed this sign twice, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. The first time right here, probably Gadara, that region, Gentile region of the the Sea of Galilee. And yet right there, it was those people who wanted to see Jesus, 5,000 Jews and they gathered up 12 baskets full of broken pieces when at that time there were 12 tribes of broken pieces the broken pieces to jesus were very much the people of israel sheep without a shepherd broken lost waiting the kingdom of shambles broken pieces 12 baskets And then Mark chapter 8 tells us he performs the miracle the second time for 4,000 Gentiles and they pick up seven baskets full. Seven? As in a complete gathering of broken pieces. A worldwide gathering, if you will. See, it was for broken pieces that Jesus came to Israel in the first place. For broken pieces that Jesus came into the world. Are, Are you one of those? feel like your life's a fragment, a broken piece, and you look around at all those other church people and you go, oh, I'll never be as whole as they are, and yet Jesus gathered you. Jesus came to collect you. Jesus cares about you broken on the cross. That the fragments might be collected. I'll let the Bible tell you, Psalm 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Or Isaiah 61, verse 1, Jesus' mission statement, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What year is that? It's 2022. The favorable year of the Lord is this year because he is still gathering broken pieces. He's still caring. Jew and Gentile alike, his hands are wide open. Gather up the broken pieces. In fact, that's a mission statement for you and for me. Gather the broken pieces. They're the ones that the Lord desires to gather. By the way, what does this miracle have to do with Passover? Did you notice back in verses 4 and 5, John specifically says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now, if he had just said that, you'd say, okay, well, he's just giving us a time frame here. He is, but the very next word he says in verse 5 is, therefore. We would put it this way, the Passover was near, and so because of that, Jesus performed this miracle. It is unnamed, some say it's a Passover, I don't really think it was, I think it was Sukkot, but some say it was, maybe, maybe you're not. If so, that would be five Passovers during the ministry time of Jesus, because we know there are at least four, because John mentions four of them. Three specifically that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to attend and this one right here that apparently he does not go up to Jerusalem. He's in the Galilee when this particular Passover is near. Wait, he didn't go up to Passover? How do you know that? Because the very next feast in the sequence of John is chapter seven, verse one, and it's not Passover, it's Sukkot, which is in the fall. And this is Passover season in the spring And so Jesus is in the Galilee for this Passover, and he won't go up to Jerusalem again until in the fall for Sukkot. Interesting. You can think that one through. But what's going on here? Why does John even mention this and tie it into the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with bread? Do you get it? Do you see the connection? John is thematically drawing on the heart of Jesus because Passover goes hand in hand with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the major feast. That Passover, they, Jewish people will call it Passover, Pesach, but Pesach includes Hag Hamatzot. It's all kind of one thing and also Reshit. So you've got Passover that begins the week. You've got Reshit, which is the first fruits. And then you've got through the whole week of seven days, Hag Hamatzot, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover begins with that and stays with it for an entire week, and John, I believe, is drawing off of that. This is all part of the the annual reminder. Passover and and Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus is gonna feed 5,000 people with bread. It's a remarkable parallel. By the way, speaking of both, do you know what they call the bread that's on the table of showbread in the tabernacle or in the temple. Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Number five in your notes Jesus is the bread of the presence. He is the bread of the presence, the very presence of God. He's the presence of God. He is the provision of God. He provides the only way to get to the Father. It's Jesus. And he's going to take this miracle, this sign of the feeding of the 5,000, and he's going to roll it into an entire teaching on bread, the bread of heaven, describing himself. But that's for Wednesday night. Verse 15. So in verse 15, we we see that, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The people wanted to take him and make him lead an insurrection to fight back, and it was really a crummy response to the bread of life. You got that before I was even done with a sentence. (laughs) Seriously, this was a dangerous moment in the ministry of Jesus. F.F. Bruce says, these 5,000 men would have constituted a ready-made guerrilla force for anyone willing To become their leader, verse 15 suggests that a leader is just what they were looking for. All they needed was someone to stand up and say charge and 5,000 Galilean Jewish men would have charged to their own death. But they were ready to fight. So what does Jesus do in response? They, they stir in the crowd. They're starting to get amped up, make him our king. He's the guy, bread, he's the guy, for. he's the prophet, he's got to be our man, he's Messiah, and they're starting to press in, and they want to make him king, and what does Jesus do? He takes the bread out of the oven. Verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples, I was in a funny mood this week, I don't know. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land. But it was, you know, cracked up to be which is another standalone teaching. And I've, I've never taught them together. In fact, I was looking back and thinking about, yeah, I've, I've never put the two together. And I think they should be put together, which is why we're doing it this evening, or this morning. <laughs> it's already evening for me. Some have said this really wasn't a sign. You know, the critics, they want to explain this stuff away. Maybe they had just been blown near the North Shore and Jesus was sloshing around in the shallows. I Maybe mean, that's what was going on. It looked like he was walking on water, but they had been blown up by the storm near the shore. If that was the case, I ask you, why were they so terrified? Why not just say, hey, Jesus, throw us a line? More so, why not just hop out of the boat and <laughs> walk to shore? Jesus is in the shallows. Well, then why does Matthew tell us, Matthew 14, 24, that the boat was already a long distance from the land. Think about it. If the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and they have rowed three or four miles, well, but Rick, it's only eight miles wide. Okay, let's go with the eight miles wide, and they had rowed three or four miles. Where does that put them? In the middle of the sea, spinning around helplessly. Multiple things are going on here. Multiple things are are happening as they're spinning in the middle of the sea. And then note that when it's all over, they're immediately on shore. John was there. John attests to the fact that immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Boom, they're there. They had rowed those three or four miles. They're spinning in the storm. They're out of control. They see Jesus. He gets into the boat. Boom, they're on shore. So number one, you can note this. It's a miracle of transportation (laughs) right off the top. That is supernatural. There's something that Jesus did to get them off of the middle formation going on. One way or the other, either Jesus became himself so light and buoyant in the flesh that he could just skip across the waves or the water itself became chemically altered to work as a platform for him to walk across. I like what Alexander McLaren said. He is the mighty Christ Christ to whose gentle footfall the unquiet surges are as a marble pavement, and who draws near in the purposes of his love, unhindered by antagonism, and even using opposing forces as the path for his triumphant progress. Listen to that again. When you're having trouble in ministry, pay attention to this. Unhindered by antagonism, even using opposing forces as the path for his triumphant progress. You see, there's a third miracle, and it's the one I want to hone in on this morning more than any other. This miracle going on is a miracle of traumatization. A miracle of traumatization. That is, he sent them into the storm. Well, how did he know that the storm was coming? Do you know that he knows? Do you know that he knows. Matthew 14 tells us that immediately, as the crowd's stirring up, they want to make him king. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Wait a minute. So, so you're saying he knew the storm was coming and he made them set sail knowing that they were going to go right into the mouth of that storm? You're saying that was intentional? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Jesus saw a storm swelling right there on shore in the heart of the mob. And Jesus knows this. He's Jesus, of course, he knows this. He sends them into the stirred up sea. That phrase stirred up is diagero, and it means to rise in agitation. The sea was angry that day, my friends. (laughs) Those of you Seinfeld fans, you know what that's from, George Costanza. Sea was angry that day, my friends, like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli. <laughs> lake Canaret, which they were now sailing across, they're midway through this lake. It pools in a basin that is 680 feet below sea level. The air in the Galilee tends to be heavier and still, and usually it's pretty warm, kind of humid there. On the eastern shore, the mountains of Gadara, which are, by the way, the Golan Heights, the really hill ranges through there are called the Horns of Hattin. And there are multiple wind tunnels that come off the cold Mediterranean Sea blowing through those wind tunnels, explosive and sudden and unexpected. And even Sea of Galilee boats today have been trashed by these sudden storms. Just trying to encourage those who are about to be on a boat in the Sea of Galilee next month. This is what takes place on the Sea of Galilee. So when you look at this harp-shaped lake at 13 miles by 8 miles, and you're looking over it going, how bad could it be? Bad. Especially when you think about the fact that the disciples were in a little 12-man skiff. Most of the boats on the Sea of Galilee, the fishing boats, were no more than 16 to 18 feet maybe in length. And even to put in this case, 11 guys on one boat like that. If it's calm and glass all the way across, you're probably okay, although I think Peter might have fallen out, but you'd be okay, you know. Storm starts to rise up and spin and the sea gets agitated. You are in serious trouble. Jesus sends his disciples straight into a squall and what does he do? He goes off and has his quiet time in the hills. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He knows what he's doing. He sends them into the storm. This was on purpose. Jesus, though, doesn't go with them. Have you noticed that? He, they had been in a storm before. Did you know that? With Jesus. This is not the first time they've experienced a storm with Jesus. They had been in one prior, Matthew chapter eight, verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus was asleep. So in the first storm, he's having a nap. And they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said, "Jesus said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? But there at least he was with them in the storm. This time he's not. This time he just sends them on on their own while he goes off and he's having his prayer time up in the hills. You ever feel like God has left you out to dry or in this case, wet to soak? (laughs) You ever feel like God has sent you into the storm and you're going, where are you, Lord? What's going on, Lord? Save me, Lord. He's not even with us. He's not with me. He's not here. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus had not yet Come to them. What does that tell us? That we know that he knew he was going to. But they didn't. They didn't know what was going to happen. All they knew was that they were miles from shore in the midst of a storm that threatened to take their lives and drown them all. That's all they knew. They could not at that point imagine what was about to happen. He was in the boat before. Now he's not. We're dead. We're done for. me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And note this, in the midst of the storm, they could not see Jesus, but the Bible tells us the very one who sent them into the squall, he could see them. In fact, Mark chapter 6, verse 48, tells us, as Jake mentioned a week or so ago, that Jesus was watching from the Golan Heights. He was watching them. That is, he had eyes on them as they're spinning in the storm. They didn't know that. They didn't feel that. All they knew was their trauma. But Jesus is watching this take place. See, it's easily visible, even in a storm from the Golan. Now, listen to me. When you understand and accept that God sends us everything in how we think. It will change the dynamic of of pain into perseverance. I can't see him, but I know he's got eyes on me. I can't feel him right now, but I know that he is with me. I know that he knows what he's about to do. I don't. I know that Jesus got me into this boat. Have you ever said that? God, why'd you get me into this boat? And his answer would be, I know what I'm doing. Do you know that I know? See, that's faith. Do you know that I know? And I'm not talking about laying blame on God. Oh, this terrible situation, it's all your fault. Thank you, Lord. This is joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or how about this, Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him We know that he can see them and we know what he's doing. He's praying. Here's what I suggest to you. He's praying up a storm. That he was praying for the squall. That he was praying, Father, give him a little tempest. Father, stir the waters. Father, bring the wind. Jesus praying for their stormy place? Well, he finally comes to them. That's a problem for some. That he walks on the water to them. By the way, it's according to Matthew 14 and Mark 6, it's the fourth watch of the night. Stay with me here. It's the fourth watch. That means it's between 3 and 6 a.m. What should have been only a three-hour tour... (laughs) is now an eight to nine hour odyssey. They have been out there a long time. They are at their wits end. They are wiped out. And maybe you are too. I've been waiting. I've been watching. I've been rowing. I've been praying. I've been crying out to Jesus. And he hasn't shown up. And he hasn't come. Maybe it's not the fourth watch yet. Maybe his purposes aren't accomplished in you yet. I don't know. I've, I've really rolled this over in my mind quite a bit the last couple of days especially. But maybe the purpose of the pain has not yet been realized or satisfied. I don't mean God's satisfied in our pain. He is not satisfied in your pain. But perhaps there's something in me that needs the satisfaction of realization. That I'm in this storm for a reason. And I'm not saying because of my sin and my my foolishness or my stupid. I'm just saying, talking with a brother this week who has an inordinate amount of pain that he describes as the size of a cannonball wound in his chest. I came out of studying this to talk with him. And as we sat there talking, I just thought, I can't even fathom the pain that he's feeling right now. I don't I don't understand it. I don't know why these things happen the way they happen. In fact, the only thing I can do in those situations is try to comfort with the comfort with which I myself have been comforted by God. I know what he's done. I know what he says. I know how he is. And I do know this much. And listen to me. I know the storm doesn't last all night. I know the storm is for a season. It's for a set amount of time. There is an end to the storm, whether we can see it or not. Leaves out. Well, Mark leaves it out too, actually. Peter walking on the water. See, this is the same story. This is when Peter steps out of the boat, takes a step, looks at the waves, and goes down. And Mark leaves it out. We think because it was based on the preaching of Peter that the book of Mark was written, so you know why Peter would leave that out. John leaves it out. Doesn't mention Peter stepping out of the boat, walking toward Jesus, sinking down into the seas. Why does he leave it out? Because this is the fifth sign. This is not about a disciple, it's not about the storm. The focus is on Jesus. Now look at what he says to them It is I. Sometimes I love our English translations. Can you imagine Jesus comes walking out to them on the sea. They see him, they're terrified. The paschal moon is shining down through the cracks in the wild clouds and the winds are whipped up in the waves and here comes Jesus, probably glowing in that moonlight to a degree and they see him and they're terrified and he says, "It is I." <laughs> Where do we get this stuff? You know what he says? In the Greek, "Egō e me." Translate that to its exact translation. I am. Now that's powerful. There stands Jesus Christ on the waves before them in their terror, in their anxiety, in their turmoil, and he says, I am. I am. Hebrew translation, Yahweh. You know what, it doesn't matter because the declaration of who he is is in the manifestation of what he's doing, standing on the waves. Before them, ego a me, I am. Who else can walk on the waves through a raging storm but God himself? And so when I asked you the question earlier, do you know that he knows? Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that I am Do you believe this about Jesus? He walks across the tempest. And then he says, do not be afraid. Remember what he said in the first time they were out in the storm? Oh, you of little faith, don't be afraid. He says it again here, but note this. He literally says, do not go on being afraid. Like the last time, I get it. That was the first time you are in that storm and you were terrified. I understand. This time, don't go on being afraid. Don't continue being afraid. Part of what we can learn in our ministry Christian lives is to look back at previous storms and see that he did get us through them. Don't go on being afraid. You were afraid once. Okay, don't go on being afraid, Jesus says. God knows He knows when the deliverance must come and he will show up. I am telling you this absolutely. He will show up at the exact right hour. So what are you going to do when he does? Verse 21, they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What will you do when Jesus does show up in the midst of your storm? Will you receive him? John 1 verse 12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And we end right here, save the rest for Wednesday, that immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I want to read you a psalm to sum this up. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. Just listen to this for a moment, because it is a prophetic psalm. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke, I'm going to underscore that, he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths, speaking of a boat. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. They were at their wit's end. Literally, all their wisdom was swallowed up. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress to their desired Haven, immediately, they're on the shore. Brothers and sisters, immediately, we will be too. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Note this, he sent them to go across the sea to the other side. And he has sent you and sent me in this life of service, this life of ministry, to get to the other side. We will get to the other side. And it will happen in an instant when he comes to us. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Two signs bread and water, Passover and and the Red Sea pictures perhaps, the fourth, the fifth signs declaring who Jesus is. I know ministry is hard. I know living for Jesus is not always what we think it's going to be, what we glamorize it to be ahead of time. Lives of service can be tough. And Jesus may actually pray you, may pray me, right into stormy crowds or stormy seas. It may be divinely intentional, but he will get us to the desired haven. Amen? You, when you call us home, but hearts that are willing to receive whatever storms you may have prayed us into. Oh, we know, Lord, that on the other hand, the enemy is always trying to attack. We know that Satan means everything to be destructive and life-ending and evil, but we know your purpose completely drowns his. We know that your emphasis, that your desires, that your will is to accomplish things in us that we still don't know. But I pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us the faith to believe that you do know what you are doing. Ah, Jesus, thank you for a revelation of yourself to us again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.